I'd like to ask a kind of fundamental question of us to kick things off today, which I guess is going to be something of a, a platform for today's talk. And I don't want to shove hands, you don't need to shout out answers, but I do want you to think of uh, what would be your number one answer for this, maybe. And the question is very simple. It's this, what do we get from the resurrection? What do we get from the resurrection? What do we gain? How do we benefit from the resurrection of Jesus? Give a moment just to kind of ponder. What would you say? You might have a whole number of different thoughts. What would be the main thing uh, out of those? What do you think would be the number one? This is the thing we get from the resurrection. For you personally or for God's people generally or for humanity. I don't know how you want to you put that. Well, you could have all sorts of things, I suppose. Uh, you could talk about the end of the fear of death. Fear of death gone. Uh, you could talk about well, the validation of all of Jesus' life and teachings that we get from the resurrection. It kind of, when Jesus comes back from the dead, it kind of says, yep, he was the one. He, he was correct. I mean, uh, together with his death on the cross, obviously our sins forgiven. Uh, we get eternal life uh, as Jesus rose. Uh, the resurrection is a picture of eternal life for all believers. Uh, power to defeat temptation in our lives. That's a common image used in the New Testament about uh, Jesus' resurrection and its effects on our lives. You could talk more generally about peace, about joy, about hope, about a purpose in life. I don't know if any of those uh, would be on your list. Maybe you count with something much more profound and uh, theologically deep than that. I don't know. Um, but you know what? You could actually know all of that stuff and you could add all that on your list and you go even more than that. Uh, and you could even live your life in the good of all of that and actually miss the whole thing. You know that. You could, you could do that. That would be possible. Because you see, there is one uh, thing that far outweighs all the other benefits we get from Jesus rising again. Uh, and it's kind of implicit in the whole operation of Jesus rising again. I mean, what do we get from Jesus coming back? Well, we get Jesus. <laughs> I guess that's the be all and end all. That's the, the key foundational thing. We get Jesus. What do we get from the resurrection? We get Jesus. And what I'd like to do today is unpack this, the greatest prize of all and how this relates. Because that can sound like a, a bit of a throwaway phrase. We get Jesus. Yeah, great. What does that mean and why is that important that we understand that? And to do that, we're going to be in Luke 24, uh, Luke 24, 13 to 35. I think I might stop slightly before the end, actually. But that's where we're going to be today. And this is a story, as we're going to see in a moment. It's all going to come up there. If you've got a Bible, turn to it. Was helpful to do that, but we will have it coming up bit by bit behind us as we go along. And this is a story essentially about two people who learn this lesson, and as they do, they get to see Jesus. Okay, and as you're going to see, physically, these guys will have seen Jesus before, but by the end of this story, they're seeing him much more as he really is. Okay, my prayer in all of this stuff and through this talk today is that God too will open our eyes as he does to these guys in this story so that we'll see Jesus uh, more for who he is. And for some of that might be a reminder, reopening of the eyes. For some it might be uh, for the first time. But just before I go any further, I recognize I'm unable to open eyes in the spiritual sense of this. I just want to pray for Jesus to come and do that as we go along. Okay, so I'm going to do that and then we're going to get on with stuff. Sound like a plan? Everyone on board? Good, nice, great. You see, I asked Russ for permission to pray. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll do it again. Lord Jesus, we love you, Lord. Thank you so much for showing yourself to us. Uh, Jesus, I'm aware that I'm completely dependent on you and your spirit right now, as we all are. And I want to ask for every one of us here, whether we know you well, whether we know lots about you, whether we don't know much about you, whether we've never been to church before, whether we call ourselves a Christian or not. Lord, I pray, would you send your spirit to open our eyes so we'd see what you're about, Jesus, and love you more because of this, Lord. Amen. Amen. 
Great stuff. Okay, so remember where we were last time, or you might not remember if you weren't here, but two weeks ago, the ladies had come to the tomb, found it empty, a couple of angels there, but no Jesus. Okay, Peter, they go back, tell the disciples, Peter goes, finds it's just as they said. Okay, but you'd imagine at the end of all that, I think, right, we've got this one, we've put the pieces together, not a bit of it. They all end scratching their heads, thinking, what on earth is going on? And we pick the story up then with a slight change of scene uh, in verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. I'm just going to go through it bit by bit, and we'll kind of have a bit, talk about it, and go on like that to bring the story out bit by bit, okay? And so the first thing I think we need to know with this is who these people are. Who are these two disciples? It says the two of them, and that relates back to verse 9 before when you've got a group of the the followers of Jesus together and the ladies come to them to tell them that they found the empty tomb. And that group is very clear, consists of two groups of people, the 11, okay, which is Jesus' crack team minus Judas, obviously, okay, so the 11, and then it says, and all the others, okay, that's the group that they're all of them refers to. And we know that these two here are in the all the others category, okay, because in a couple of verses, one of them's named, he's called Cleopas, and we've never come across him before uh, in the gospel, and so they're clearly not part of uh, the original 12 disciples, but they would have been, I imagine, pretty enthusiastic followers of Jesus to still be hanging around on the Sunday. I mean, you've got to remember, Jesus had been executed as a criminal, to still be saying, yeah, we follow him, even in a private sense, that would have taken a degree of connection uh, there because a lot of them would have run off uh, at this point, even some of his closest followers as, in one way or another. Okay, So these guys are some followers of Jesus, not the 12, but they still are pretty, uh, pretty good followers of Jesus in that sense, if we can use that phrase. Okay, Second thing to note from this start is this rather odd setup to the whole affair, uh, which is that Jesus comes to these two who clearly knew him, yet they don't recognize him at all. Okay, Now, just to let yourself into my, my kind of great theological mind. Uh, I've always uh, taken this as cast iron proof of something that I've always wanted to be true but never knew for sure. But here we have it here. This is clear evidence that Jesus clearly did, as all the artwork in the medieval times tells us, have a beard. So you know, you might wonder how I've come to that conclusion. But it's obvious, isn't it? If he had a big beard for his whole ministry, quick post-resurrection shave... This is what happens, isn't it? You know, well, is it Jesus? Is it not? Don't know. Uh, anyway, well, that, <laughs> that I found that helpful for a number of years. <laughs> my, my theory does take a bit of a hit from the explanation the passage actually gives us, which is always a bit of a shame when that happens. Um, but it says this, it explains that it maybe wasn't facial hair related. It says, they were kept from recognizing him, okay? Now, even more annoyingly, there's no other information given. It doesn't explain to us what that means, but it seems... There's a little more going on here than they were just a bit despondent and weren't really concentrating or Jesus had had a shave. Okay, There's something else happening, probably something intensely spiritual about this whole kept from recognizing, but no other information is given. And I'm, I'm sure we could now go off on an angle here and it would be valid to do, look at what that means, how that would work. And I'm not, not going to do that. I'd like to kind of focus at a, slightly, at a slightly different level on that. Well, I don't think we're going to explore much of why was it they didn't recognize Jesus, this guy they knew before. I think almost their non-recognition of Jesus in this passage serves as a picture of a general spiritual blindness to who Jesus was 
and had always been there for these guys. There's a sense, I think, as you look through this story, where yet yeah, they'd physically seen Jesus before. They should have physically recognized him, but there's a sense in which, now, in a real way, they'd never seen Jesus properly before, these two disciples. And actually, as we see the story, that is the story that we see uh, uh, unraveling uh, as this story goes on. And I'll tell you what, I mean, as we go through the story, I hope you'll, you'll see where I'm coming from. Let's see verse 17. He asked, and that's Jesus talking, uh, what are you discussing? Jesus clean-shaven and fresh-cheeked. What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not, does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? Jesus asked. I love that bit. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Just stop and think about uh, this for a second. We've got it up there. You might have it in your Bible in front of you. I wonder if you find anything slightly odd about that account, about their description that these two disciples give. I mean, I mean, let's face it, it's not a problem. I don't think there's not a problem here as regards accurate information. I think they pretty much nail the general description of what's happened. If, if we really wanted to pick hairs and be pedantic, we could say, ah, oh, but he was more than a prophet, wasn't he? When he said that he was a prophet. I think that would be a little harsh, as the disciples at this point had no idea what was going on. I mean, they were really clutching the straws for anything at this moment. So I don't think we can go too heavily on that. So the information I don't find a problem here. What I find slightly odd is their tone in the whole thing. As I said, these guys would have been pretty close to Jesus. They're still there when Jesus has been crucified. They would have been close followers. They would have spent a good amount of time with Jesus, definitely. Therefore, these are bereaved people. They're not talking about some person. They're talking about someone who was very special to them. So why then do they refer to their lost friend as as if they're reading out his Wikipedia entry? That's an odd thing. That's strange. Where's the feeling? Where's the emotion? Where's the affection here? I think their reaction reminds me a little bit of how people react on Facebook to the death of famous people. Okay? I don't know, I'm sure not everyone here would partake in the delights of Facebook uh, or swap delights for whichever word you like in that sentence. Uh, but I've noticed this on social media, when, when someone dies, people have this odd response. And I, I would imagine for most of us over the last year or so, there would be somebody famous, a public figure of some sort, who has passed away, who you would have some sort of connection with in your life. Okay? It could be uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy for the Star Trek fans here. It could be uh, David Bowie. It could be Alan Rickman. For some, even Scylla Black, maybe. She's the one who defined your, your early life. I, I don't know. Okay? Uh, for, for me... It could be someone else. Um, it came about a week ago. A guy called uh, Malik Taylor um, died, 45-year-old guy, complications with diabetes, who was someone in my uh, youth particularly who I'd listened to a lot of his music. He was a rapper with a group uh, called A Tribe Called Quest. He kind of died suddenly at uh, a very young age. And so I found myself looking at all these Facebook posts people put up, R.I.P. this guy, R.I.P. this guy. And I started thinking, well, how should I respond at this point? Because the classic Facebook response, and it's very... It's very kind of uh, obvious what it would be. It's how sad. I noticed that. That's the kind of thing. It usually has a couple of little upset 
emoticons after it, maybe a few of those. But how sad, that's what people say. I began to ask myself, okay, this guy who I've got some connection with has died. Should I now be feeling really sad? Should I be really glum for the day and then put loads of tributes on my Facebook wall and that sort of thing? I guess for me... I did think, okay, there is some sort of sadness here, but it's an odd one, isn't it? Because it's, of course, sad for those people's family and friends who died, but it's not really sad for me in the same way, because I had no personal connection with those people. And I concluded that the sadness, because there was a sadness, it wasn't really for me with Malik Taylor. It wasn't for who that person was. It was for what they could do. That was the sadness that came, was there, I think was there, and is there for David Bowie or whoever dies. Now, it's, it's sad that nobody, I guess, again, will benefit from that person's talents anymore. And as someone who'd enjoyed uh, that man's music, I've shared that sadness. I will never see a Tribal Quest live. Uh, they will never produce another album. There is a degree of loss, uh, I would argue, that the world has from that. Not everyone would agree. I think it's that same sort of sadness that seems to be making Cleopas and his friend downcast and gloomy on the road to Emmaus. Or at least that's how they're communicating things. Actually, I say this not just because of their unemotional tone, but because of this strange statement they give that kind of explains their connection to Jesus in verse 21. What is the, the real nub of the issue here for them that's really got them? Okay, Verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That's, that's their sadness. That's the loss. They were. We'd hoped he was going to redeem Israel. He was the one who was going to do it. But now, no. Sadly, that's not going to happen. He's not the one to do it. They had hopes for what Jesus was going to do. They, they clearly thought they would benefit from that as these guys would have been Jews, they'd have been Israelites in that sense. Okay? But this wasn't a purely selfish thing. Redeeming Israel was a big deal, massive deal. Okay? Probably it involved a whole load of things in their minds. It was definitely restoring the fortunes of that nation. Probably would have been involved. They thought he's going to somehow politically start an insurrection, kick out the Romans, whatever it would be. And also the spiritual element. Probably he would start guiding God's people to be more faithful in following God as well. But you've got to see, a lot of those hopes, while they were good hopes, although some slightly misguided, I guess, while they were good hopes, these guys are expressing their connection to Jesus for what he could do, not for who he was. It's as if, actually, if you're being quite harsh here, Jesus was incidental to their hopes. Because if, the way they put it is if Jesus had been able to say, okay then, I'll redeem Israel for you. There you go, have Israel, and I'm off. It would have been they wouldn't even notice Jesus going, brilliant, we've got Israel, fantastic. That's what we wanted, thank you, job done. Okay? That, that seems to be the way that they're communicating here. But wait. Let's think about this. Jesus wasn't, though, some famous person that they'd had his poster on their wall when they were teenagers. No, he was their friend. He was the one they'd chosen to give their whole life to follow. That's what following Jesus was. Someone who they'd risked their lives to stay even just slightly associated with after his resurrection. He's someone they'd spent time with. To get a kind of feel for the inappropriateness, I think, of this response it's the contrast with how John portrays one of Jesus' followers' response in his gospel that we looked at last week, actually, is telling. Last week, if you're here for the Easter service, uh, Andy spoke from John 20, and we saw Mary Magdalene and her response. How different is this? Think of their kind of Wikipedia entry response. Mary Magdalene, she's outside the tomb. She's in tears. There's two angels come up to her. She doesn't even notice their angels because she's so upset. They say, well, what's the problem? What, why are you crying? And Luke 20, John 20, verse 13 says this. They have taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they've put him. 
Can you see the difference? They've taken my Lord away. What's her concern? Her concern is not that the world has lost some great public figure. No, no, they've taken him away. He was everything to me. I've lost someone who was my whole world. And although she thought he was dead, even just to have his body would have been better because she loved him, because she felt connection with him. It was affection for him. On Sunday morning, Mary clearly already saw Jesus in a way these two followers, it seemed, had never seen him. She loved him. He was precious to her. Not primarily because of what he could do, but because of who he was. Let's continue the story. How does Jesus respond then to these two? Verse 25, he said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So, Jesus doesn't really mince his words, as often is the case with these two. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Okay, Now, of course, let's be clear on this. His main criticism of them is that they haven't realized he was going to rise again. Let's be clear on that. That's definitely here. Jesus had told them on several occasions... By the way, guys, listen, everyone listening, you're looking at me. I'm, I'm as a teacher, I know how you do this. Look at me, I want to see your eyes. I'm going to die and then rise again. All after me, let's repeat it together. It was kind of that sort of thing. And at the end of each one, he says, they had no idea what Jesus was talking about. And so here, he's clearly saying, look, he's shaking them. Look, don't you understand? Okay, so that's clearly the main point here. But, but Jesus does seem keen to correct the perspective that I've been mentioning too. Look at how he corrects it. Next thing. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things before he saved the whole world or redeemed Israel or cleansed people from their sins or something like that? No, Jesus is saying here that the goal of Jesus' suffering was first and foremost his glory, his exaltation, his being revealed to be God. This is about Jesus, this thing primarily. This is not about necessarily what we get from him. Paul who writes a large chunk of the New Testament, um, he was someone whose eyes were open to who Jesus was in an even more dramatic way than these guys. And he got this. You know, Philippians 2, 7 to 11. You can turn to it if you like. I'll read it to you quickly. But you can see the, the parallel here. This is what he says about Jesus' suffering. He says, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's a very kind of famous kind of description of Jesus' suffering and poetic how it is. But why? Why did Jesus go through all that for, for Paul in this case? Why did he do it? What's the result? Well, he goes on. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But what about the bit about he suffered for me so that my sins could be forgiven for me? Yes, that's all true. Paul tells us all that. But actually, there's a sense in which sometimes we have to remove ourselves from the equation here and say, why did he die? What was Jesus' suffering? Well, his suffering was a gateway for his glorification. We don't see Jesus' death on the cross and all this stuff, and then eyes straight back to us. Great, we get all this stuff. Now, our eyes are supposed to be stuck on him. Look at him. Glorious. He's entering his glory. He's shining the spotlight well and truly back where it deserves. 
Jesus suffered so that everyone would see him for who he was. We, we sing that song, don't we? This is Jesus in his glory. My son's um, particularly keen on that at the moment. He's trying to replay it in the car. It's my popular Christian songs on my mix CDs in the car. Remember that one in the future. Uh, it's a great thing. He loves that song. What's, what's wonderful about that song is it teaches this. At the moment when Jesus was, seemed least glorious on that cross, no, here he is in his glory because it's about through that suffering, he is exalted. And all tongues and all knees will bow and all tongues will confess and all eyes will be on him. Our eyes are locked onto Jesus. And see how Jesus continues. He wants to lock these guys' eyes on him and him alone. And verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He's bringing it back to him. He's saying, look, can you see? I'm not just a means to an end here. I'm not just some way you can get the things you wanted. I'm the vanishing point of everything. All roads lead to me. Don't you see? And Jesus, as he was turning the spotlight back on himself and refocusing these disciples, I I think he wants to do the same for us this morning, for all of us, wherever we're from. Following Jesus is not just respecting a prophet or teacher. No, it's deeply personal because with Jesus... All our hopes are not resting on what he said or what he did, but on who he is. That's what we are. We're Christians. We're people of Jesus, the Christ. The whole point of following Jesus is we get to know him. Our sins are forgiven. Well, why are our sins forgiven? What's the point of that whole exchange we thank him for so much? Is it so that the psychological burden of guilt can be taken off us so we can live more wholesome and fruitful human lives? No, that's not the point. It's a great added bonus we get from the whole thing. But why are our sins forgiven? Our sins are forgiven so that we can be reconciled with God. Because knowing God in the person of Jesus is the goal. We want to be close to him. It's about relationship with him. It's about friendship with him. It's about loving him and enjoying him. So let's go back to our story, verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going... Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. Let's <laughs> just we'll stop there. This is another, just so I know, I don't really fully understand this. It's a very odd detail in this story because it's like, it's like almost that Jesus was just wandering through the countryside. Oh, happens to meet clear passages. Oh, but I'm off somewhere else. Where? Where was he going? I mean, was he going back to Jerusalem? Who knows? Um, and again, it's left enigmatic. But I, I wonder if Luke uses this a little bit to present us with but with a choice here. And the disciples are clearly left by this kind of Jesus was going on further uh, with a choice. They've got three options as far as I can see. Jesus is forcing the issue. They have to choose something. And I think their three options stand as these. They can either say, brilliant to meet you, Jesus. Thanks for that great exposition of Old Testament history and everything. Uh, we'll go and think about that. See you later. Goodbye. So they can say goodbye to Jesus. That's the first thing they could do. Secondly, they could go with him. This guy's pretty impressive. He's bound to be about some great stuff. Let's go and share some of the adventure with him and do some of that stuff. They can go with him or they can ask him to stay. Okay? There seems to be the only three options available to these guys. And before we see what they actually did, I know some of you will know, um, this, I think, in a sense, Jesus gives the same options to each one of us. Whether, whether you've ever heard of Jesus before or not today, whether you've followed him for years or not today, I think the same three options are available to each of us. When we hear Jesus' teachings, we confess the first thing we could do, we could let him go. We could say, goodbye, Jesus, like the disciples on the road, right, see ya, off you go to where you, you could be going to. Now, you could, of course, do this because you reject his teachings, you don't see them as wise or whatever, or true. But that doesn't need to be the case, because... 
you could actually really appreciate Jesus' wisdom on all sorts of things, uh, on how we should live, on matters of theology, on church or whatever, but actually deep down, you don't treat Jesus himself as precious. That would be possible to do. And so perhaps you could come to church or read your Bible or read other Christian books or do things like that, and you go away and, and the main activity is here in your mind is you think about it. Like, that was really interesting. You know what? I hope the things we do at church are interesting. I hope when you find, read the Bible, you find it interesting. But that, in a sense, is your only response. That's interesting. I'd like to read this now and do this. But you don't feel a kind of passion for Jesus, a hunger for Jesus growing. It's as if you just let him go. See ya. I'll take your teachings, Jesus, and I'll think about those. But no, you don't need to be with me. Off you go. So we, we could do that. And just to say here, if you're not a Christian here, and you might think, well, you might have a mixture. You might think with the teachings of Jesus, you're looking into Christianity, thinking there are some teachings of what the Bible says that are kind of interesting. Some you like, some you don't like so much. Some things that Christians do, odd. Some of them, some of them really good. Some things, some things you think you could do. Some things I could never be like that. And you're kind of ana- analyzing the whole lot, okay? But I, I'd encourage you in this whole mix. It's good to think about that stuff, but you've got to know where the center of this stuff is. Actually, it's not just about taking a body of thoughts and teachings or some religious practices and can you build them into your lives? No, no, it's about meeting Jesus. That's what Christianity is. You want to cut through all the other stuff. No, it's meeting Jesus. I think, how does Christianity work in a world where someone like Donald Trump, he's into Christianity, isn't he? How could you be involved in that? No, no, cut that stuff away, okay? What's it about? It's about this guy, Jesus. Look at Jesus. Read about Jesus. So we pray in a bit. Say, Jesus, I want to meet you. I want to find out who you are. Come to me. That would be my advice for you. I'd love to chat to you about that if that's you later. So firstly, we, we can't let him go. We have to be with him. But there are two options there as well. We could take this option of rushing after Jesus on his mission, which these disciples could have done. We'll go with you. Okay? You could be like this, Jesus, I'm going to do the things you're doing. I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to build your church. I'm going to tell people about you. But actually, sometimes when we do that, the issue is this. What we're interested in is there's a kind of adventure about it. We want the adventure. We want to do and we want to act and we want activity. But it's not that we're going there because of Jesus. We're not going to be close to Jesus. We're doing to do stuff that seems exciting. Now, just to back off a second, make sure I don't get myself into trouble here. If you've been to Church Centre for any length of time, you'll, you'll know that we're very keen on the mission that we have as Christians. Before Jesus went to heaven, he told his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, okay? Be my witnesses, as we'll see in Luke's gospel in a couple of weeks. And we take that seriously. That's not just for some Christians. That's for all Christians. That's not peripheral to our faith. That's crucial. That's what Jesus wants us to do. And we take the mission very, very seriously. But you know what? We've got to be careful that we don't get this out of kilter. And I say this to myself as well as anyone else, because you'll know that I'm someone who's, who, who bangs on about the mission all the time. Don't I? Bangs on for something. Oh, here we go again. And you think, this is funny coming from you, Johnny. Oh, the mission's really important. But listen, it's not... Christianity is not primarily about the mission. Primarily, what's it about? It's about loving Jesus. And you know what? We could be the most zealous missionaries the world has ever seen. We could give our last ounce of blood, sweat, and tears into building this church and trying to do good for our city. But you know what? If we don't know what it is to enjoy Jesus for who he is, we'll have missed the whole thing. It's possible to do great Christian stuff for all sorts of reasons. Because you want something to do. Boredom is a major problem in the world today. Now I've got a purpose, I've got something I can do. To validate ourselves and our existence. You know what, this week, 
had a great I feel good about myself because I did this, 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 this. It's possible to do that. Activity works like that. I'm not saying activity is bad. I'm saying we've got to know where the center is. Because unless you know what it is to sit there and say, you know what, Jesus, I love you. I enjoy you, whatever. Actually, the other stuff is going gonna, is gonna to be potentially a problem. It's going to take us the wrong way. There's third choice here, and I think is the correct one. And it's what the disciples do as we see. They plead with him to stay with them. Verse 29, going back to our story. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So finally we get there. Finally, they see him. They recognize him. They have the moment. They're so, so stupid, <laughs> the whole thing. And it's uh, in the context of a meal. It's interesting. Again, I'm sure a whole sermon could be done just on verse 30. There's, there's clearly references here to the Last Supper and the... Uh, communion, kind of broke the bread and this is my body. There's references even here to the feeding of the 5,000, I think. And you could, you could go into all those things. But we mustn't miss the obvious here. Jesus reveals himself to his disciples at a meal in the most social of settings. There's no agenda to a meal like this. It's not, it's not a team meeting. It's not to plan out the next stage of operations. No, it's a meal. A meal, while you enjoy the food, hopefully, you know, a meal is the place where you can enjoy company. That's what it is. And that's where suddenly their eyes are opened. Jesus isn't overturning any tables. He's not teaching. He's not healing the sick. No, they're simply enjoying his company. And their eyes are opened. Again, just to say, I'm not saying here, I'm not implying, you probably know where I'm going with this, that you don't get to see Jesus on mission. or You, you don't get to see Jesus when you're listening to teaching from the Bible. Far from it. No, we see Jesus massively in those things. And actually, you see Jesus on mission far more than you do just sitting about, actually. However, even with that said, unless you know what it is to enjoy Jesus' company and to value him for who he is, you'll never truly see him at all in all the activity. In a way, this message is very simple and obvious, but it's so easy to forget. Being a Christian is about lots of things, but primarily it's about Jesus. It's about trusting him. talked about that a few weeks ago. Yeah, it's about obeying him. That's important as well. But first and foremost, it's about loving him. It's about valuing him. It's about enjoying him. So let's hone this in. Let's relate this to us then as we kind of draw to a close. As I said at the beginning, I, I think God wants to open our eyes to this truth again. So for some of us, again, for some maybe for the first time, and that might not mean you've never been around before. Maybe you've never really nailed this one. He wants us to see that Jesus, who he is once again, who Jesus is once again, not as just as someone to serve, not just as someone to serve, but someone to love. Not just as someone who is important to us for what he can do, but someone who is precious to us for who he is. It might seem like a subtle difference, but actually, I think it's massive. I think it's huge. I mean, just think for a moment. I, I guess you'd have all sorts of hopes of what you'd like God to do in your life and through your life when you pray and stuff like that. I, I guess for some of us, we're, we're hoping that Jesus uh, revives our nation. We might use words like spiritual revival. Some of us uh, might put it in a different way of kind of deep-seated cultural change, however you want to put that. 
maybe just you want a wholesale turning back of people, more people becoming Christians, God to bless the church and all that sort of thing. And we pray for such things and we put work towards such things. And those things are good things, you know. But we mustn't get so focused on the mission we forget intimacy with Jesus. This wonderful occasion, I actually mentioned it at this site, not at the other sites uh, a few weeks ago. And I mentioned this, it's exactly the same story as I mentioned before, but it just came to mind again of Moses. Moses was someone who really understood this stuff about seeking after God. You know, he really got it. And this is what, this amazing occasion where, uh, again, some of you remember this from a few weeks back, um, Israel have messed it up as usual, and uh, God's had enough. And he says, he gives Moses a deal. He says, look, Moses, right? Okay, here's the deal. I will give you promised land. You can go to the promised land. You can have defeat over all of your enemies, and I'll send the massive angel with you, okay? But I'm not going. I've had enough. I'm going to back out here. Now, what does Moses say to that? That's a sweet deal in some ways. He's getting everything they were going for. The mission was for those things. Moses straight away says this. If your presence doesn't go with us, I'm not going. I think sometimes we, we get with presence, the presence of God. I think we can sometimes very much change that into some sort of mystical spiritual experience that only happens in certain gatherings that we have. And that's what he's talking about there. And Moses was someone who knew about experiences of God. And those things are important. He had a tent. Okay? When he went in the tent, he met with God. And sometimes the meetings were so intense, he'd come out and uh, his face would shine so much they'd put a veil over it. Wow, that's a pretty intense meeting with God. I, I don't think he was talking about, hey, I like my tent time, God. I, I like that. I don't want to lose that. No. He's saying this. He's saying your presence. That's you. This isn't about a mission primarily. This is about you. This is about relationship. You want to get to know you. For us, I'd, I'd ask the same for us. If God said that he'd give you this nation, that he'd answer all your prayers, that he'd secure the eternal destiny of all your friends and family, but he would withdraw from you, what would you say to him? What would your response be? For Moses, it was no way. And I think we've got to learn to get to that place of saying, no way, I, I, those things are good things. I'm praying, I'm working for those things, but God, this is about you. You're the one this is all heading towards. When in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, it's going to be about him. We've got to get used to that now. <laughs> I'm not saying heaven would be boring otherwise, but you know what, that's all it's going to be. What's going to be there? Well, there's no sun because he is the sun. He is the light there. We enjoy him. We need to learn to do that uh, right now as well. So what does this mean for you? Well, for some, it could just be a simple kind of refocus, a resetting of of perspective, I suppose. Uh, But I think there is a practical way just to ground this as we close and the practical way is actually where these disciples end up. And I'm not going to steal Andy's thunder in a couple of weeks. But if you do go to the end, where do they end in this book? Well, they end worshipping. That's what they do. It's interesting. They never get to that place before. They make these grand statements about Jesus. But once they see him, once he comes back resurrected, then it says they worshipped him. And I think where we land this is worship. And I want to encourage you about your worship life to finish. Because I think more than anything, worship is where we kind of enjoy Jesus. I don't know what you think of worship. I don't know what you think it is. I just want to be really clear what I'm not saying here. Some of you might think it's an odd thing to say. I don't mean by worship singing some songs with your eyes closed and your hands in the air. I don't mean that by worship, okay? Worship is absolutely central to our faith. It's not necessarily central to our faith that we worship in a certain way, in a certain style, okay? For me, I I do want to labour this a little, because I know this is relevant to some, although not to all. For me personally, um, I'll be honest, I really enjoy singing songs in a 
kind of meeting like ours. We, we'll hop over to the north in a few minutes um, and I won't be able to worship with you in that sort of sense. But I like that. And one of the reasons for that would be for 38 years of my life, my birthday on Friday, just saying, no longer 37. I know it's hard to believe, I know. But anyway, for 38 years of my life, um, I would have been used to that every Sunday. would have learned, in a sense, how to worship in that sort of setting, how to engage in a kind of, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, I don't think to myself, should I put my hands up now or should I not? How does this work? No, it's just like, I know. I'm used to this stuff. And for me, the way we worship and the way we do the music part of things on a Sunday, I find it really helpful and really helps me to focus on Jesus, okay? And I know for many of us that would be the case. It's brilliant in this church to be served so well by our worship bands, okay? It's great to see the stripped back uh, worship band we got today, but you guys, Will and Wayne, it's going to be great for you guys. It's, you serve so great, uh, guys, and we're such, so blessed as a church by that. But I, wouldn't, I do know there are some people who do find the singy bit of our meetings a bit tricky, it could be uh, that you're from a very different church tradition. It's just like, well, how does this work? This isn't, I've heard sermons against this sort of thing. And, and that's in your mind. Maybe it's slightly different. Maybe it's just that you're a bloke. <laughs> <laughs> I recognize, let's be open. Some of our songs have quite feminine imagery, don't they? Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's odd. I, I can do that. I love this song. It's a great song. Oh, I'm running to your arms. Oh, I'm running to your arms. I mean, you, you ask a guy coming on the street for that. That's not what, you know, I, you know what I'm saying here. Okay, we'll be honest. Let's be honest about this stuff. That's, that's real. Maybe it's you're from a different culture that's not English. The style of music doesn't massively connect you. And you find that a distraction, not a gateway into the presence of God. Okay? I'm not, I'm not saying anything about the style of music. I'm just saying in a corporate worship setting where there's people from all sorts of different places, that is bound to happen. Perhaps, let's face it, you just don't like singing. That's possible, okay? It's probable in many cases. You know what? None of those are bad things. I think it's really important that we recognize that we can be honest about these things. Look, this is where I'm at. And some of those things, actually, you might never change for you. But even if that's the case, I'd really want to encourage you. Try to push past those distractions in the singing time in our meetings. Push past your preferences and actually, there's a degree of learning here, I think. Is, and I'd encourage you to invest and learn to get the most out of our worship times. You might do it differently to everyone else. That's absolutely fine. You might not want to put your hands there. That's fine. There's nothing special about putting your hands up or down. I mean, who knows? People do it differently. But just because it's unfamiliar, don't miss out on opportunities to worship because worship is what really it's all about. It's great. In those times, like in, in a few minutes, when we hear God's encouragement, someone says a word and you think, I went away and God really encouraged me in my life. Then I feel much better about stuff in that sort of way. God directed me or guided me. And that's great. But again, that's not what it's about. We're here. When we do these things, you've got to see it through the lens of this. We're, what we do in that same time is we're, it's like we're around the table with Jesus. It's like those disciples in that last bit. We're just there enjoying him. Just, you know, what we don't have to talk. We're listening to what he says to us. We're just enjoying his company. Isn't it wonderful to go away from a meeting like this and to say, I enjoy Jesus today. It's better than having a prophecy that says this and God blesses you with this. It's better than finding a new theological truth. If you don't know that, I just encourage you to engage, to ask him. He's right there as we sing. Whether you like the style of music or not, he's across the table from you. He's open to you. Enjoy him. Enjoy him. Now, as well, just as I think it's important to build this into our lives generally on our own as well. I'll be honest, for me, 
I've been really challenged preparing this message. I've, I've felt God just moving, just saying, look, Johnny, come on, back over here again. Right? My quiet times with God, if you call them that, devotional times, I think recently would have been, we really enjoyed those times, been really regular, but I'd have read the Bible a lot and kind of try to get deep into uh, some stuff, <laughs> like One Chronicles, it's hard to get through those lists. But I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm trying to get stuff out of this, I'm, I'm getting somewhere. And I've been asking God for stuff. I'll be honest, that's where I've been for the last month or so. And there's nothing wrong with that, it's good stuff. But I've got to say, no, are you enjoying me though? Are you enjoying me? Let's worship again a bit more. Let's spend some time singing. Can you thank me? Why don't you just put away the agenda? Don't try to get through your Bible in a year. It's not, it's not what it's about. It's not page coverage. No, enjoy me. Now for some of you, you won't really know what that looks like. And you think, I don't understand how that works. I just sit there and it's a bit dull. I'd invite you to get hold of somebody who you think does. Or your life group leader or one of the site leaders here. Come and chat to me or email the office if you feel stuck, you know. Like, hook up with someone. Ask someone to pray with them who you think enjoys God, who enjoys Jesus. Get alongside them. There's lots of things we can say practically, but make that a priority. It's not about clocking up minutes. It's not about, well, I've done my list and all that. No, we want to enjoy Jesus. So then as we now do finish, a challenge to us. It's the question I just asked. Are you enjoying Jesus for who he is at the moment? How is your worship life at the moment? I think worship is what people do who've really seen Jesus. And actually often, you might think that sounds pressure, actually often as we worship, just like in this story, that is when God opens our eyes so often that we see more of Jesus. Not just some great public figure who can do some really great things, but no, Jesus, the resurrected, exalted Lord of all, who wants intimacy with us, not just our service and obedience. What do we get from the resurrection? We get Jesus. It's not a, not a oh no, we get Jesus. No, we get Jesus. Let's enjoy him and let's learn to love him more and more.